all that matters is. Wrong! This town deserves a better class of heavy metal podcast. I'm gonna get a. If you do not listen, then the hell with you. Walk through the gate of consciousness. Stop, stop, from Oh, are you expecting someone else? Maybe me and a couple of friends just shooting the shit? When you roll in with some Bud Light limes and a boombox and suddenly my backyard is transformed into a kind of singles paradise filled with bathing suit models pretending to drink beer. Then you decide to spontaneously cannonball into the deep end, soaking us all in cold, stagnant water. But for some reason, we decide to find your act of social audacity to be a charming invite, so we join you with our own spontaneous but somehow highly choreographed group cannonball session as the camera slowly pans out over the playful, flirtatious splashing and bleach-tooth laughter of a dozen 19 to 35-year-olds having the time of our motherfucking lives. Nope. It's just you and me, baby. This is my apartment party, and I got you cornered in the kitchen with a full beer and an empty bladder, so you're gonna have to hear all of my thoughts on my favorite band while you desperately try to catch the gaze of other guests silently begging for an off-ramp to this highway of social terrorism you just found yourself on. No one's coming to save you, Clarence. There's nary a bikini in sight. The only beer in my fridge is a local IPA made from recycled tires, and I don't own a fucking pool. This isn't a party. It's a goddamn nature documentary called Savage Lands. You're the wounded gazelle, and I'm the hungry mama lion slowly feasting on your living corpse while the rest of the herd looks on from the living room with impotent horror, silently meditating on the only consolation they can muster. At least it's not me. So let's do this! Black Sabbath's 1970 debut. That's where we're starting. At me, AV4A pod, if Twitter still exists, at the time of you hearing this, right now, it's still a question. Uh, if you like the podcast, please go to Apple Podcasts or uh, Spotify and give us a five star review. And if you hate the podcast, give it a review anyway, because maybe the other people that you don't like will accidentally listen to it. And, you know, that'll bring you joy. I don't know. Maybe it will. I don't care. I just want the review. So I know some of you may be thinking, isn't this guy tired of talking about Black Sabbath? I thought this was a metal podcast, not a Black Sabbath podcast. Well, it is a metal podcast. But if we want to get to the heart of heavy metal, we kind of have to get to Black Sabbath. And I think there's a lot to cover that I never got to cover. So I wanted to cover the discography of the original lineup, the first eight Black Sabbath albums, which come conveniently in two four-album sets. Look at that. So, here we go. I'm ready to do this. Are you ready to do this? It doesn't matter. We're doing it. Black Sabbath's 1970 debut was recorded on the 16th of October, which is kind of spooky because while writing this episode, I thought, oh, hey, that's tomorrow. It wasn't. 
As I looked at the calendar next to my framed cover of the album itself, I realized, oh no, that's today. So, sounds like this is the end for me, my friends. I had a good run. No regrets. A pair or two of spandex shorts, maybe, but I was a child of the 80s. I can't hold that against myself. In Tony Iommi's autobiography, which reads like a Samuel Beckett play with less coherence or hope, the legendary frontman explained that the band recorded the entire record in one 12-hour session, elaborating, We just went into the studio and did it in a day. We played a live set, and that was it. Aside from the sound effects on the opener and Iommi double-tracking his solos on two songs, they didn't do any overdubs. What you hear on the record is, for the most part, one take. I'll come back to that, but... I think the thing that I find most remarkable about the debut is that you can hear Black Sabbath in real time transforming blues riffs and jazzy drum tracks into heavy metal. Listen to what Bill Ward is playing on the opening of the third track. It's this jazzy little beat under one of Iommi's blues riffs. They come together for two strong downbeats, and then Ward leaves a series of little breaths open for Iommi to fill. Here you go. They're kind of passing the song back and forth, right? I play this, you play that, and we both come back together here. It's that call and response rhythm that jazz inherited from African culture. They're all talking to one another and leaving space for a reply, and each member of the band gets their own little feature. Sabbath is obviously fluent in jazz and the blues, but the true genius of this record is hearing them translate that language into an entirely new one. Now that said, Iommi didn't start down-tuning to C-sharp until Master of Reality, so where is that really thick, heavy, distorted sound coming from? Well, one, distortion. Low fidelity wasn't as much of an aesthetic choice in 1970 as it was a function of reality. Perhaps it's Master. That was a reference to the album Master of Reality. You know what? Let's just keep going. In order to play as loud as Sabbath wanted to play, they had to crank that analog shit up to 13. And in doing that, they brought a butt truck of dissonant fuzz along with them. And I, for one... Just want to personally thank Satan for making it all possible. Oh, Lucifer, son of the morning and father of lies, Apollyon and Abaddon, angel of the abyss and accuser of God's people. Thanks. But as often as lead guitarist Tony Iommi, I'm just realizing I wrote the word as guitardist. I don't, I don't know. I'm not a scholar, but I don't think that's 100% accurate. In fact, it makes me sound kind of guitarded. As often as lead guitarist Tony Iommi is credited for creating the sound of metal, Sabbath's bassist, Terry Geezer Butler, is, at this point in their discography, just as responsible, if not more. Now, contrary to popular opinion, Butler didn't get the nickname Geezer as a result of secretly being a 94-year-old man dressed in the skin suit made from local children. I don't know who comes up with shit like that. He got the name due to a penchant for calling everyone Geza, a habit he stole from his brother, who in turn stole the habit from his time in the English army, which, according to John Lennon, had just won the war. I don't know how you get a nickname by calling other people that name, but it can't happen too often or I'd have a lot of friends named Hey Dumbfuck. 
Geezer Butler started out as a rhythm guitarist, so when he moved over to the bass, he didn't really know that he was supposed to be playing formulaic blues tropes, like A, D, A, E, D, A, over and over and over for four minutes. Actually, that's what, that's what John Paul Jones plays on Rock and Roll by Led Zeppelin, a song which, despite its seemingly superficial title, cleverly employs the term rock and roll as a euphemism for sex, and is augmented by a libretto that features such complicated lyrical compositions as ooh yeah and ooh yeah. So, there's a lot to unpack there. But because Geezer didn't know how to be boring, he did a couple other things a little differently. First, he filled in outside the edges of the lead guitar. When Iommi's leaving some open air around a riff, Geezer uses that space like his own personal Kansas. Kansas. Yes, Geezer and Toto poured water on the witch and saved the day. What a world. When Iommi is leaving some open air around a riff, Geezer uses that space like his own personal canvas for the bass. And 52-year-old spoiler alert here, motherfucker knows how to paint. Listen to this. the bridge into the movement immediately following Wasp called Behind the Wall of Sleep, a reference to a science fiction short story written by H.P. Lovecraft in 1919 about secret experiments and telepathic communications with interstellar beings centered around the idea that human thought is actually a form of radiant energy and no, you are never getting out of this kitchen because I can just go on like this for fucking ever. After the bridge, they come back to the final verse because Sabbath doesn't even fuck around with chorus cornices? That's a cornice. After the bridge, they come back to the final verse because Sabbath doesn't even fuck around with choruses at this point. And you can hear Iomi and Ozzy alternating guitar riff and vocal riff before they outro into this little Beats by Ward moment that serves to tie all 9 minutes and 44 seconds of the song together. Again, it's that call and response technique that they come back to throughout the entirety of this album. That don't sound like heavy metal to me. Well... No, Nawabum, it's not. It's the next thing Geezer does that's part of the invention of heavy metal. Is it about leather? Leather? No, it's not about leather. Switchblade? It's not about a switchblade. No. Demon with tits? What? All right, I'm going to the pub. All right. See you later, Nawabum. In 2020, when Rob Blasco, also known as... Rublasco of Guitar World asked Butler if his bass lines were inspired by a song's riff or if it was the other way around, Geezer offered, practically always, I'm following Tony's riffs. One of the signature innovations of Black Sabbath was when Geezer would use the bass not just to augment or support what the lead guitar was doing, but to mirror it exactly. That choice meant that when Iommi dropped those nasty riffs onto the track, the bass and the lead were both playing the same thing at the same time, and that little switcheroo generated a sound so deep and resonant that it demanded the creation of a new genre. Iommi was taking blues riffs and either speeding them up to make them sound thrashier, like the end of the title track, or slowing them down to make them sound doomier, like the beginning of the title track. And on a song called N.I.B., which brings us to a song called N.I.B. 
If you want to hear what I mean when I'm referencing that heavier sound that you get as a result of using the bass and lead to play the same riff, NIB is probably the best first example. It really feels like the genesis of riff worship in popular culture that eventually became a defining feature of heavy metal. It also contains one of my favorite moments in the whole of Sabbath's discography. After Behind the Wall of Sleep, Geezer plays a little bass solo that someone decided to name basically because they were a stupid butthole whose kids probably hated them. But the solo continues on a final fading note before Geezer introduces the riff that becomes the centerpiece of NIB. And as that last note is just hanging there and you're expecting it to fall off into silence, suddenly and surprisingly, it gets louder because they're doing this all in one take. And in that moment, what you are hearing is Geezer Butler turning up his own amp. The vestigial DNA of Black Sabbath's debut comes out of the blues and jazz, but there is a mutation that's taking place at the same time. That mutation is a synthesis of those genres with a deeper, darker, more resonant, and more forceful sound. And like we talked about in episode one, the philosophy and aesthetic to match it. But thankfully, Sabbath wasn't content to just invent heavy metal, not that they would ever admit that that's what they were doing. They wanted to push their discovery even further and find out just how deep the rabbit hole in the sky goes. As you may or may not know, music critics didn't much enjoy Black Sabbath. The album was a commercial success, reaching number 8 on the UK album charts and 23 on the US Billboard chart 200, where it remained until June of the following year and sold a million copies. 
So imagine the embarrassment of those one million suckers, those Cro-Magnon dilettantes who wouldn't know good music if it jumped up and bit them on their huge foreheads when some kindly elder member of their pack read them the album review by Lester Bangs of Rolling Stone, and they learned for the first time that the album responsible for the creation of an entirely unique musical genre, one that as of 2019 was the fastest growing in the entire music industry, beating out R&B, K-pop, J-pop, and the other Rice Krispie guy for a 154% increase per year in streaming and downloads? The genre that dominated physical copy sales over all others in 2021. The genre that gave its name to a band that since 1982 has sold over 22 million concert tickets and alone generated over $1.4 billion for the music industry? The album that spawned that genre? That album? by Black Sabbath, whose lead singer has sold over 10 million concert tickets and generated more than half a billion dollars in sales by himself? That album, as it turns out, is not good. Despite the fact that Rolling Stone listed Black Sabbath Black Sabbath as number 241 on their 500 Greatest Albums of All Time list, and number 44 on their 100 Best Debuts of All Time list, and fifth on their 100 Greatest Metal Albums of All Time, in 1970, they said this. Over across the tracks in the industrial side of cream country lie unskilled laborers like Black Sabbath, which was hyped as a rockin' ritual celebration of the satanic mass or some such claptrap. Something like England's answer to Coven. Well, they're not that bad, but that's about all the credit you can give them. The whole album is a shuck. Despite the murky song titles and some inane lyrics that sound like Vanilla Fudge paying doggerel tribute to Aleister Crowley, the album has nothing to do with spiritualism, the occult, or anything much except stiff recitations of cream cliches that sound like the musicians learned them out of a book, grinding on and on with dogged persistence. Vocals are sparse, most of the album being filled with plodding bass lines over which the lead guitar dribbles wooden claptonisms from the master's tiredest cream days. They even have discordant jams with bass and guitar reeling like velocitized speed freaks all over each other's musical perimeters, yet never quite finding sync. Just like Cream, but worse. Now, for those of you that think I'm going to be petty and just unfairly attack a dead man for having a different opinion of my favorite band over 52 years ago, yeah. That critic was Lester Bangs, who died in 1982 at the age of 33 of an accidental overdose while self-medicating a case of the flu. His story is a sad one, and I'm not going to malign him by resulting to petulant name-calling like Lester Bangs' own mom. I'm just, I'm not going to do that, because I'm above it, the way Lester Bangs is not above ground. After touring Europe to support their first album, there's actually a great concert that you can watch on YouTube of Sabbath in Paris, where Ozzy's introducing their most famous and well-known songs as coming off a new album. It's pretty fucking outstanding if you haven't seen it. But Sabbath returned to the studio barely six months later to record what who else but Rolling Stone would eventually deem the greatest heavy metal album of all time one that would go gold in the UK and platinum in the US, four times over, reaching number 12 in the Billboard charts and number one at home in the UK, likely one of the most influential albums of all time, the one, the only, Paranoid.
crowds gathered in their masses Just like witches at black masses Evil minds that plot destruction Sorcerer of death's construction In the fields of bodies burning As the war machine keeps turning Death and hatred to mankind Poisoning their brainwashed minds Oh, larger! was War Pigs, the opening track off of Paranoid, and here is Geezer Butler on the song's title and its meaning. I wanted to write a song called Valpurgis, you know, the satanic version of Christmas, or as we call it at my house, Christmas. Write it about that Satan isn't a spiritual thing, it's warmongers. That's who the real Satanists are, all these people who are running the banks and the world and trying to get the working class to fight the wars for them. We sent it off to the record company and they said, no, we're not going to call it that. Too satanic. So I changed it to War Pigs. And if you are keeping track, that is the same record company who, unbeknownst to the band, put an inverted cross on the inner sleeve of the first album. So, consistency. If Sabbath's debut album gave birth to the virus of heavy metal, Paranoid transformed it into a global pandemic. Was that too soon? Okay, that was too soon. File that under Lessons Learned. The A-side of their second record contains four songs, War Pigs, Paranoid, Planet Caravan, and Iron Man. While Planet Caravan would eventually reach comparable heights in the 90s thanks to Pantera, those other three songs were, and to some extent continue to be, the way in which the world knows Black Sabbath. There's not much I can elucidate about Paranoid that most listeners don't already know, nor is there any hot take to be had here. It's one of the best albums ever recorded, and it should be one of the things that we shoot off into space to let aliens know what we've accomplished in our relatively brief time as the dominant species on Earth. Like, Paranoid, 
a copy of Hamlet, and maybe a few issues of Batman comics. Other than that, it's a lot of war and staff meetings down here. But if Paranoid made millions and millions of people into casual Black Sabbath fans, as if there is such a thing, their next record, recorded around nine months later, would make a small subset of those millions into something more than casual fans. Master of Reality is where Black Sabbath become the unequivocal figureheads atop the blood-drenched altar carved from the skulls of false witnesses, fornicators, and flower children. The terrible, Stygian throne of souls known as Heavy Metal. That is the sound of guitar and bass down-tuned to C-sharp on Children of the Grave, the centerpiece of the album's A-side, but Black Sabbath's third record offered a lot more than just doom and gloom. Continuing their tradition of writing love songs to evil shit, Sabbath opens the album with a fawning tribute to the only true love in their lives, a little lady named Mary Jane. Well, that that's just her first name. It's a hyphenated name. Her full name is Mary Jane Pot. The song's about pot. <laughs> A lot of people who don't like metal cite vocals as the dominant reason. Ozzy Osbourne does not have a voice that most would consider aesthetically pleasing. He's pitchy and strident and sometimes struggles with rhythm and pacing. Sometimes he's just fucking off. Nothing really works about Ozzy on paper. He doesn't write his own lyrics. He has trouble staying on the melody. He isn't sexy. He can't dance, unless you consider that frog thing a dance, and I don't. 
And that's only when he's sober enough to show up to rehearsal. Ozzy was a mess, and he should have never been considered a good frontman, let alone one of the greatest of all time. But I want to play Ozzy's isolated vocals on this track for you because something happens when that dude opens up his head and sound comes out that is as indescribable as it is infectious. It may not resonate or align with your personal taste, but no living creature with ears can hear what Ozzy Osbourne is capable of and pretend that that voice is anything but uncanny, unearthly, surprisingly moving, and undeniably powerful. Come on now! Try it out! Straight people don't know what you're about! They put you down and shut you out! You gave to me a new belief and soon the world will love you sweetly oh yeah baby i mean fuck me that guy's a fucking ghoul humans shouldn't sound like that you know that researchers sequenced ozzy's genome a few years ago to find out why he's still alive and one of them said that his dna contains mutations that they had never seen before including a likelihood 2.6 times greater than the rest of us to hallucinate while high six times more likely to become addicted to alcohol, coupled with the ability to absorb far more damage from it, like Wolverine, but for whiskey sours. And he has a shit ton of genetic code that comes from Homo neanderthalis, or as they are more commonly known, Neanderthals. We all knew Ozzy rocked harder than humanly possible, but now science can prove it. Technically, Neanderthals are human because they belong to the Homo family. And you know what? I think that's great. They should be allowed to love who they love. Master of Reality is also where Sabbath expands the blueprint they've been sketching for Doom Metal, notably with two songs on the B-side, one being Lord of This World, which I played for you during the uh, tour of the subgenres, and the album Closer, Geezer Butler's unofficial sequel to Planet Caravan about a society that abandons the Earth to Satan and his slaves embarking on an interstellar journey into the void. predictably trashed Master of Reality with my favorite rock critic from Rolling Stone deriding Sweetleaf and Lord of This World for their excruciating slowness, which itself is no problem once you stop thinking about how bored you are and let it filter down into your innards like a good bottle of Romilar. Romilar? 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 
Anyway, it's a kind of alcohol, presumably the alcohol he mixed with NyQuil and opiates to fight off the flu, ensuring that he wouldn't live to see the album go double platinum, or his own magazine rank it as the 298th greatest album of all time. But this isn't about my anachronistic feud with Lester Bang's kids in an alley. So I'm going to take the high road. And when we come back, we will all be taking the stratospherically high road to my favorite album of all time, The Prism through which the whole of canonical Sabbath can be understood, the great bridge between their monolithic early doom records and the psychedelic existential experimentation of their progressive metal magnum opuses. And we will begin our journey beyond the void with the fourth album in Black Sabbath's discography, wherein their dark and dangerous vision turns its withering gaze inward to illuminate and elucidate the harrowing shadows and technicolor collisions that occur within the human mind and soul. The call is coming from inside the house. When we come back. Lester Bangs, rock critic for Rolling Stone magazine, failed to recognize both music history and basic chemistry before it was too late. He did manage to produce one sentence of value in his otherwise embarrassingly myopic review of Master of Reality. The man named after forehead hair wrote, The real question is whether Black Sabbath can grow and evolve as a band, so that there is a bit more variation in their sound from album to album. Well, funny you should mention that, Mo. Wait, it's not Mo, is it? It's Lester. <laughs> Why did I think it was Mo, Lester? Sabbath closed out the tour of Master of Reality on April 2nd in Passaic, New Jersey, with an opening act called Pig Light Show, which, contrary to the deepest hopes of my heart, was a psychedelic light display pioneered by Mark Rubenstein and not actual pigs. A month later, the band was back in the studio to record their fourth album, but unlike the previous three, Volume 4 wasn't recorded at Regent or Island Studios in London, but the legendary record plant in Los Angeles, California. Hooray for Hollywood. That's Hollywood. For those of you who have been to both London and Los Angeles, you know that one is a dark and dangerous labyrinth teeming with figurative and literal ghosts doomed forever to wander the graveyard of their long-forgotten hopes and the dream of a better life. And the other one's London. The transposition of Black Sabbath to Disneyland North was accompanied by a series of personnel changes for the band, including the departure of their original producer, Roger Bain, which left Iommi to assume production duties himself. Apparently, Bain didn't care for Sabbath's new direction, offering, 
Oh, you think Doom was your ally? You merely adopted the Doom. I was born in it, molded by it. I didn't see progressive metal until I was already a man, and by then it was nothing to me but deafening. And then proceeded to break Bill Ward's back in an attempt to crush his fading spirit. But undeterred, Sabbath rose to the challenge of the relocation, allowing their new environment to shape their sound in a way that gave Volume 4 a depth of emotion and inspiration that would carry through their next three albums, changing the fundamental nature of heavy metal forever. The 1970 debut began with the sounds of rain, thunder, and a distant church bell. Paranoid with the slow churn of engines fueling the war machine and master of reality with a down-tuned desk dedicated to drugs. Dude. While the actual sound of those first three album openers are quite different, the narrative has a particular consistency. Black Sabbath, War Pigs, and Sweet Leaf all describe an external subject. I don't mean in a grammatical sense. I mean that the narrator, Geezer Ozzy, is describing something outside of themselves. What is this that stands before me? Figure in black which points at me. Generals gathered in their masses, just like witches at black masses. Has anyone pointed out that the first two Sabbath albums begin by rhyming words with themselves? Was that deliberate? Does anyone know? AV4A pod. And, when I first met you, I didn't realize. I can't forget you for your surprise. These are all things that the character, for lack of a better term, is experiencing externally. It's a figure in black. Generals and witches. Pot. Again, it's just pot. The first lyric of Volume 4, however, describes for the first time an experience that is internal. You could make the case that Sweet Leaf is about the realization of how unforgettable weed is, which is also kind of ironic, but it's actually the character looking back on the first time he met Mary Jane Pot. But if you look at the first words on Volume 4, nothing is external. Long ago, I wandered through my mind. In the land of fairy tales and stories, lost in happiness, I knew no fear. Innocence and love was all I knew. It was an illusion. That's a description of an entirely internal experience. No devil, no witches, no weed. It's just the narrator wandering inside their own mind. Something is changing for Black Sabbath on Volume 4. And yes, I know what you want me to say, and no, I'm not going to say it. Those also happen to be the first opening lyrics that forego a rhyme altogether. It, it can't be pointed out enough. This album is very different from its predecessors. The first notes of Volume 4 don't sound like any Sabbath record before it. It's not ominous, but inevitable. Not the sound of impending apocalypse, but rather of an internal collapse. A heart-rending wail for something irretrievably lost. The kind of lament that one might hear coming from Norma Desmond's bedroom once the curtains are drawn, doors are closed, and she's left alone to face the reality of her life. Here it is, Wheels of Confusion, the opening track from Black Sabbath, Volume 4. <laughs>
approaching doom that Sabbath warns of on at least their first two records is no longer an external tormentor. The fear and terror of the outside world has now come home to roost. It doesn't come from without. Doom now comes from within. And as an actor and a former resident of Los Angeles, I can fairly definitively say, yeah, LA will do that to you. The move to the record plant required some independent local housing, and in an odd little twist of fate, Black Sabbath ended up renting the home of John DuPont, heir to the DuPont family fortune, who 25 years later would be convicted of murdering Olympic gold medalist Dave Schultz, proving once again that heavy metal just makes people violent. Eventually? Utterly insane and utterly true stories about the recording of this album abound, including that Sabbath had amps filled with cocaine brought into the record plant and that they spent more on said cocaine than the studio itself. The band even thanked cocaine in the liner notes with a special shout out to the Coca-Cola company, because when you're that high, you don't give a shit who knows it. Whether it was the change from London to LA or weed to coke, Sabbath was going through changes, significant transformation on volume four. They weren't four street rats from Birmingham channeling their dystopian surroundings into blues metal terror anymore. They were legit fucking rock stars with gold records and something to say. They were making music from where they were rather than where they had been. Sabbath had traveled the world and found that the fucked up shit that they saw around them in the industrial slums of England didn't end at the water's edge. The seeds of darkness and despair that had always been paramount fascination for the band, and particularly chief lyricist Geezer Butler, had roots not just in other countries, but in other people, in humanity itself. On volume four, Sabbath took that fundamental principle of heavy metal, the critical, deconstructive point of view that they used to paint kaleidoscopic visions of a world filled with monsters and demons and turned it in on themselves. And what they seem to have discovered on their fourth album with songs like Tomorrow's Dream, Supernaut, and the intended title track was that the most horrifying of existential threats in the modern world were often self-inflicted like spending more money on cocaine in a couple of months than any of the band members' parents would have made in a year. Combined. I'm not kidding. I looked this up. The average yearly wage for men in Birmingham, England in the 1960s was 728 pounds. For women, it was about half of that because they just worked half as much. That's the only possible answer. So check out this math real fast. That adds up to an annual income of 1,092 pounds. The pounds to dollars exchange rate in 1960 was 2.8, which makes the average annual income of a working family in Birmingham, England in 1960, $2,730. In 2021, Geezer Butler told Rolling Stone that during the recording of Volume 4, Black Sabbath spent $75,000 on cocaine. $2,730 to $75,000. $75,000, the kind of money it would take their parents 27 years to earn back home. That level of disparity and, frankly, depravity likely has an effect on a person. And it very much did on Black Sabbath during Volume 4. I don't think that there is a clearer or more resonant example than the song that was supposed to share its name with the album before the record company put the kibosh on using such a blatant drug reference as the title. 
It also contains what is perhaps my favorite piece of music ever written. Between the second and third verse on the track, Iomi goes into one of the most plaintive, sorrowful sounds to ever come off of a heavy metal record, or for that matter, fucking any record. The medical term for snow blindness is photokeratitis, and it occurs when ultraviolet radiation burns the corneas of your eyes, or worse yet, the retina, leaving the sufferer temporarily or permanently blind. It's a condition caused by the combination of two elements Black Sabbath found that they could not escape during the recording of Volume 4, namely the overabundance of sunshine and snow. <laughs> Now that I've poured my musical heart out on this episode, let's check in with human shit-stained Lester Bangs and see what kind of garbage he wrote about this one. We have seen the Stooges take on the night ferociously and go tumbling into the maw. Well, he's not wrong there. 
And Alice Cooper is currently exploiting it for all it's worth, turning it into a circus. All right, another good point. But there's only one band that's dealt with it honestly on terms of meaningful to vast proportions of its audience, not only grappling with it in a mythic structure that's both personal and powerful and actually managing to prosper as well. Oh, let me guess, Aerosmith, you fucking dilettante homunculus? Ugh. And that band is Black Sabbath. As you know, Lester Bangs, I have always maintained, is one of our greatest rock critics, not just of his time, but of all time. And I, for one, am sickened and outraged by the infantile strain of internet commentators who would malign this good man, nay, this hero among men, and his good name or his untimely death just to promote their own pet theories on music history. Rest in peace, Lester Bangs and flights of angels sing thee to thy rest. Just not from the first three Sabbath albums, because you didn't really like those ones. And I respect that. Never said otherwise. Volume 4 went to number 13 on the Billboard pop charts and number 8 in the UK, and despite largely negative critical response by Lester Bang's inferiors, went gold in the US on November 6, 1972, a little over a month after its release, eventually going platinum in 1986. But somewhere around the middle of 1973, Sabbath's tour in support of the album fell apart because, and I know this will shock a lot of listeners, drugs. So the band took a few months off, uh, not to recuperate or anything, just to do more drugs. And it's here that Black Sabbath begins working on material for album number five. When I started telling this story, it was about four kids from the industrial butthole of England who managed to scrape together enough to start gigging as a blues outfit called Earth, and at one point the Polka Tolk Blues Band, which was a real missed opportunity for my money. They were all dirt poor, and they didn't really have many prospects for the future. Iomi dreamed of growing up to be a nightclub bouncer, which isn't exactly ambitious, Ozzy grew up as one of six kids in a two-bedroom home, and at the age of 15, having been found guilty of stealing clothes and being too poor to afford the fine, he spent six weeks in Winson Green Prison. And while that sounds like the quaintest prison in the history of the universe, I'm guessing it wasn't. Geezer was one of seven kids and grew up vegetarian, but not for ethical reasons. It was because his father made $30 a week and could rarely afford to buy meat. Their parents were all blue-collar employees in factories and tool shops, and there was really no reason to expect that these kids would escape the same fate. But when our DeLorean takes us back to the year 1972, they're having cocaine flown in on private jets to the mansions they're renting in Los Angeles from the wealthiest inbred murderers that money can buy. Nothing is stopping Black Sabbath from making variations on their first four albums for the next 50 years like ACDC or turning their dark and gloomy image into a gimmick like Alice Cooper or Kiss. Yeah, they invented heavy metal and forever changed what the more extreme elements of rock and roll would look and sound like for the next half century and beyond, but nobody really knew that in 1972. Black Sabbath is standing at the edge of a precipice after Volume 4, and not unlike their prospective futures back in Birmingham, the path forward offers far fewer good options than bad ones. It's not just improbable 
that at this moment in time, Black Sabbath would continue to chart new musical territory for themselves and the genre that they've coined, it's just damn near impossible. On the next, and volume for all, we are going to talk about the second quartet of Black Sabbath albums from the band's original lineup. How the boys from Birmingham managed to defy inertia, avoiding a long, slow slide into cultural irrelevance, and instead delivered two more classic albums that once again reshaped the future of heavy metal in their own image. Which late, great Sabbath record joins Technical Ecstasy on that list? Yeah, no. No, that's not happening. Well, you know how to find out. You just gotta fuck around. On the next, and volume for all.